0: My name is Tricia Cusden, and my leadership lesson is you're only as good as the team that you have around you.
1: Hello, and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. Today, we meet Tricia Cusden, founder of Look Fabulous Forever, a cosmetics company geared towards mature women that she runs with her two daughters, Anna and Susie. She and Anna discuss the inspiration behind the company navigating the world of e-commerce while also running a manufacturing business and the secrets to working harmoniously with her children. She says, I launched the company with no great targets in mind, but I wanted to see if I could do something with my money. It was much more interesting than shoving it in a pension. And I wanted to get out there, meet new people and have a more interesting life. Tricia, you launched your company Look Fabulous Forever about 10 years ago when you were in your mid 60s with only about 50K worth of savings. What was the inspiration behind the company?
0: I, I guess the inspiration primarily was that I was in my mid 60s. I was looking actually for a new challenge, believe it or not. And I've always loved makeup and business. And uh, I really didn't like the way that the beauty industry tended to ignore me um, and my needs for makeup in particular they were very happy to flog me anti-aging skincare but when it came to putting nice products on my face to make me look fabulous there was no conversation with me as a 65 year old woman only with the you know much younger people and i resented it enormously so i just thought i'll put those three things together my love of makeup my love of business and my dislike of the beauty industry create something different
1: so how did you get started you had 50k worth of savings what did you do with with those savings initially when the company first launched? Um, a remarkable amount
0: when I look back. Honestly, um, naivety was a wonderful thing. I mean, I had no idea whether the amount of money that I was prepared to lose, which is effectively what a stake is, it's something that you put up and you say, if I lost this, would it be okay? Um, or would, it wouldn't be the end of the world, let's put it that way. So as I said, remarkably, I got a, a lot for my um, for my money. Really, when you when I think about it, but I was very honest with everybody I dealt with. I just kept saying to them, "This is my budget. This is all I've got. I can't go beyond this." And I got some tr- tr- a tremendous response from uh, from people as a result of that. Actually, um, people were very kind, very supportive, very helpful, and. Um, and I did manage to bring the whole uh, thing on, you know, on budget, which was, as I said, was remarkable. I mean, we needed investment quite quickly, quite soon after that uh, to keep the business going. Um, Anna can tell you more about that. But the initial amount that I had to invest was was just about enough.
1: Mm. So, Anna, how did the company continue to invest? Because when we talk to a lot of female founders, they often find um Generating investment quite difficult. So, what was that process like for you?
2: Uh, it wasn't as difficult as as um, you might think. Actually, we decided we'd go for angel investment rather than taking VC um, money. I think, from point of view of the pressure that VCs kind of exert on young businesses, we decided that wasn't a route that we wanted to take. So, we through our own network really actually managed to raise. Seven hundred fifty thousand. although quite a large chunk of that came from um an angel investor who listened to trisha on a podcast and uh, and the kind of message and and vision for the business chimed with her own kind of she was of a similar age slightly younger actually but i think she loved the the idea of um age being no barrier to fabulousness and uh anything that kind of increased visibility for, for older women she was she wanted to get behind, so she she invested um, because she loved the message and the vision of the business. So yeah, we took we took angel investment uh, at the end of 2017, and um, that was really to help us grow sales, launch new categories. So that year, we launched a new skincare uh, range. We also um, grew in the states. So it was around it was around marketing and product development.
1: So what was who was in your sort of? Um in a circle of people that you could get investment from
2: um i mean it was a huge kind of amount of serendipity behind quite a lot of it you know sometimes it was actually one investor came through someone uh that i've met in the school playground and she introduced me to someone who then introduced me to someone else so um i think because we had such a strong story and we had traction we were showing quite good traction in things like youtube the, you know the youtube tutorials were doing well we were getting a lot of press attention um when Trisha was putting posts out on Facebook and then the revenue reflected that so we had quite strong profitable growth and I think when you've got those two combined that helps investors believe in you and get behind your your story so yeah primarily it was friends and family and then when it came to people beyond that it was through a kind of network of people that helped us and introduced us to people. And then also just reading our story on or listening to it on podcasts and reading about it in the media.
1: And Trisha, as well as um, creating YouTube videos, I read that you started hosting parties to demonstrate the products. What made you choose that route?
0: Well, that was my initial business plan. Um, my, my original model was that I would literally physically go out and sell this stuff myself. And I would be the salesperson, and I would talk to my friends, their friends, I would go to their houses, I would uh, do makeover parties. I trained as a makeup artist, a very old makeup artist trainee I <laughs> have to say and um, that allowed me to you know that that showed me how to put makeup on other people 's faces and um, that 's what i that 's how I started that 's how I got going and uh, it was It was remarkably successful i mean I sold well under those circumstances, but incredibly limited. Obviously, it was limited by my time, my energy and my capacity to actually get people to give me parties. Meanwhile, we would posted these two videos onto YouTube, which we'd made as part of um, the initial um, uh, build, you know, launch the business. And um, they were getting, as Anna said, they were starting to get traction and, and the views on those were going up and up and up and up. And as those views went up, we started to get online sales. And one night I went out and sort of. In a horrible, cold, wet, rainy night, left home at about five o'clock, got home at about ten o'clock did did a sort of um a charity fair thing where I had a stand and a stall to sell to sell to people coming around this fair didn't sell very much, got home at ten o'clock, looked online and I thought, why on earth am I doing this going out under such difficult circumstances when I could sit at home and literally watch the sales come in on my computer <laughs> so That changed the business model quite profoundly. And and I really only did that makeover party um, idea for about eight months, I should think. It was starting to peter out by the time Anna then joined me. And of course, by Anna joining me and getting some really good PR for the business, um, the whole online sales side of it started to grow even more.
1: And you're still making YouTube videos today. How is that platform helping to grow the business?
0: Well, the thing about YouTube is that um, you know it's it's sort of free when you upload a video, and we we have found that by regularly posting videos, uh, and they can be small uh, or or quite serious, you know, tutorials. Um, the content that we we keep creating and keep putting out onto to YouTube attracts more subscribers. It's a virtuous circle, and it it's a constant. Keeping ourselves in the public eye, and of course, those women who are on YouTube, who, who like to look at makeup tutorials, um, those and, and our subscribers love it when we post new content. So, um, it, it's a fantastic way for a business like ours to uh, to keep being having having, a, having a, a sort of shop window on the world, really, because those those videos are seen over the, all over the world.
2: And just to add to that it's a great place for people to discover us it's a kind of top of the funnel activity where we can get ourselves in front of new people and they see us on youtube they might watch a video then they come onto the website to have a look at the products they might sign up to an email at that point um then we can retarget them on facebook so it's a kind of early awareness part of our customer's journey
1: and you post videos quite regularly. I've just having a look on your channel, and you posted one literally a few hours ago today. So, how is that continuing to grow the business even to this day?
0: Oh, well, I, I just think it's about engagement and presence. Those two things are very important. And if you have a YouTube channel, um, it consumes content. You know, it's it's a it's like a massive a massive content consuming machine in lots of ways. And um, we we lost we lost our focus on YouTube for a while, but our marketing team has has brought it back into sharp focus again because we've discovered that it really is an excellent way for us to introduce ourselves to new people. So you know that so that's why we keep creating this as much different and interesting content as we can. And every now and again we hit you know we, we hit the jackpot. We we've got a, a video that's got. Um, went viral and it's it's now had over a million views. I think it's a five minute makeup um tutorial, which wasn't done by me actually, it was done by one of our um makeup artists that we use, Sally. And um it just took off. And when you have a viral video like that and it just it just goes mad. It's a terrific way for us to um to to just, you know, it's like it's always like passive selling in a way. It's it's so brilliant.
2: Also, we target an older demographic. So, you know, basically women over 55, roughly. And that demographic is quite poorly served in terms of what's made for them on YouTube. So they, you know, they, they over-index as YouTube users, but under-index in terms of the kind of content that's made. So then if you are a, if you are a content creator making specific content for that audience, then it's a great way for you to kind of get cut through because there aren't that many other people doing it.
1: Recently, you acquired Creative Cosmetics, which is the an Ipswich-based manufacturer that has been making products for Look Fabulous forever since it launched. How did that come about?
0: Well, I'll tell the first part of the story, and Anna can tell the second part of the story. <laughs> um, it was it was serendipity, like a lot of things that have happened at look fabulous Forever. But we had a we we've always had a brilliant relationship with the two guys that run that factory. I I think of them as our initial investors in lots of ways because as we started this conversation by saying I had a limited amount of money to uh, uh, to create the business, and one of the massive favors that they did for me was that uh, they made fairly uh, small amounts of each of the products that I wanted that they developed for me. So they they did sort of um, quantities of around 200 for each product and normally their minimum order quantities are around 5,000. So you can imagine that that was for them a, a huge concession but they really liked our ide- uh, the idea of Le Cravis Forever. I established a very good relationship with them very quickly so we've had 10 years of them producing excellent, high-quality products for us. Uh, But they were both getting a lot older, like I am. So uh, one is a similar age to me, mid-70s, and the other's in his 60s. And I just got this terrible feeling that they'd either sell the business, uh, shut it up, you know, uh, retire. I, I mean, we didn't know what they were going to do with the business, but we felt that they were coming to the end of what they wanted to do with it. So on a trip up to see them, I was with my other daughter and we had a conversation about it. And I said, you know, we were really clever. We'd buy them. And I think she was a bit sceptical. But when we got there, Alan actually said to me during that meeting, he said, would you like to buy us? And it's like, (laughs) how can this be? You know, within hours, I've said we ought to buy them. And and they've said, how about buying us? So um, I'll hand over to Anna because it was quite a long and torturous process. But we got there in the end
2: we had to do a certain level of due diligence on the factory before we bought it. And we brought in a couple of experts from the beauty manufacturing side of um, the industry. And they both said, it's an act. you know, it's a potential gold mine because a lot of color cosmetics are made in Italy and China. And thanks to Brexit, there's a lot more complexity around manufacturing um, abroad. And so brands looking for kind of uk manufacturing that there just isn't much here so you've got a a great opportunity to offer that to other brands who want that story as well of of products made locally and then supply chains being shorter um and all that kind of thing so we felt like it was a potential risk in that um you know it's been run in a certain way for 30 six years and it needs some modernization and it needs some improvements in terms of systems but the basics the fundamentals of them making great products are there so and they're relatively you know they're not particularly well known in the um cosmetic manufacturing field so they're slightly under the radar they've never never done any marketing they've never done anything apart from respond to inbound inquiries which is quite an amazing way to have run a business for such a long time but we feel like if we can get word out there about the factory then there's lots of business to take potentially.
1: Mm. And what were some of the ways that you modernized?
2: It's kind of in a a transition at the moment but we need to put in a more up-to-date ERP system, we need to um, look at uh, you know raw material costs, we need to look at perhaps some of the, where some of the um, raw materials are coming from at the moment, Um, look at componentry, where they're sourcing that from, you know, it's about making it more efficient, really. Um, And looking at, you know, reducing costs wherever possible to make it um, as profitable as it can be.
1: So you're now the the owners of an e-commerce business and a manufacturer. What's it like managing the two and, and what makes them so different to manage?
2: Well, in the e-commerce business, you've got literally thousands of customers. And while we know some of them, um, because we have a we have a great Facebook community called Trisha's Super Troopers, um, but the vast majority of them, we don't know. Whereas in a, you know, in a manufacturer, you have perhaps, you know, they've got about 100 customers and of those 100, there are probably only 20 that are active at any one time. So the pool of customers is much smaller and the demands that they take on your time is much greater um we've also discovered that the cash flow is much more much more lumpy in a manufacturing business than e-commerce you know we get paid instantly when people buy things from our website and um we are learning to manage those um, invoices that come in for raw materials that are quite large and yet the goods haven't actually been made and paid for. So all those kinds of challenges, which I'm sure would be very familiar to anyone running a business, a B2B business. But for us, it's been um, a bit of a learning curve. Mm.
1: The company went through quite a transformation during sort of new year's Eve, 2015. Um, and you received some BBC coverage, which helped boost sales from 20,000 to 25,000 in about 24 hours. What was your initial reaction to that?
0: Well, it was a, it was a mixture of, um, excitement and terror actually. So, um, the, the, the BBC came with Steph McGovern to interview me here, and we we they made the most beautiful little three minute film. It was like like the perfect advertisement for our business. They were doing a series on un, unusual entrepreneurs and they put it out at ten to seven and ten to eight on new year 's Eve two thousand and fifteen and we'd been doing pretty well up till then, but nothing sort of stellar and um Anna was in Ireland for some reason um, for New Year and she phoned me and said, have a look at the website. It's going crazy. This was about half past seven. I don't I sleep in in the morning. So I hadn't even thought about watching the television or seeing this. And it's like we, I, I went online and there were over a thousand people on the website and it was just incredible and then and i had a ping thing on my phone and it would ping every time we had a sale, a sale um which hadn't been as active as uh, as that before and it was just like a ping 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 it was just incredible so the sales were just coming in and in and in and in and, in. and um so it was very very exciting but the terror then started to settle on me that we wouldn't have enough stock to satisfy the this incredible sudden surge in demand so again, Alan and Paul, who are creatives, I went. I went straight up to see them. He basically said, "We'll do everything we can to to restock you. We'll restock you as quick as we can." And they they literally uh, put everybody onto the lines to produce our stuff. And um, I went to the delivery company that we use just down the road from the factory and asked them to pull in temporary staff so we could get the the orders out. You know, really, really quickly. So we got through that, and it was the it put us on the map, really. I mean, it it meant it meant that we built a different kind of team on the back of it, and um, I, I think the business it was a step change for the business. It really was.
1: So how was how the kind of company trajectory going so far? What does the company look like now? How different does it look now compared to how it was when it first launched? I launched it
0: with no great targets in mind Uh, i I did it to have some fun to use that money and see if i could i could do something with it that was more interesting than shoving it in a pension i um i wanted to get out meet new people um have a more interesting life all of that was satisfied quite quickly by uh, by what happened and then um anna came on board and then my other daughter came on board we built a team and basically the whole thing has become hugely professionalised we've got an amazing team of all women um, who are very good at what they do I think we now really truly understand the nature of a retail e-commerce business
2: you kind of get pulled in lots of different directions as a startup entrepreneur I think focus is really hard because you're constantly being asked to do things and you think oh maybe that will grow sales maybe this will grow sales and it, it takes a while to learn. You've got to focus on the thing that works. And for us, we spend the majority of our market, marketing budget on you know, Facebook advertising, Google AdWords. Email is a massive part of our business. I think we're lucky that our target customer is someone that still opens her emails and they aren't going into some sort of promotions folder that she never looks at, uh, which is what happens to, to my emails. Um so yeah, emails are very is very important to us, and it's something we've invested in quite heavily. And also, we managed to employ someone during COVID, who was extremely good at, at um, understanding the kind of return on investment needed for that marketing spend. I think that's also quite a challenge for small businesses to keep the marketing spend under control and to really understand what is going to go, grow the business and what's not going to go, grow the business. Um, and the person that we brought in to become our marketing director is actually now the managing director of LitFabs Forever, and I'm now the group managing director of across both businesses. Um, so our, my role has changed quite a lot in the last few months um, and, and has given me a more of a kind of overview position rather than a hands-on day-to-day Um, role in Look Fabers Forever because Janice has that experience and um, knowledge to do that really effectively and need me to focus more on on the kind of bigger picture and growing both businesses.
1: The Campaign Podcast is your twice weekly navigation through the sometimes rocky waters that surround Adland. Every Tuesday, we bring you a roundup of the biggest news stories and look forward to what's happening in the industry over the coming days, delivered in campaign spirited but authoritative style. Each Thursday, we take a deeper dive on picking issues and hot topics or celebrating initiatives and events like Can Lion, Mental Health Week and Black History Month with studio guests, exclusive interviews and longer form features. You can find it now wherever you get your podcasts. Hope to see you there so talking about covid the kind of health and health and wellness and beauty and skincare industries saw a huge boom Um, was that something that you noticed within look fabulous forever did you tap into that that real kind of boom for skincare and beauty products
0: at the start of it when i could see it creeping towards us through italy i got i was terrified because i just thought Okay, if this is going to result in everybody being uh, told to stay at home and don't forget our target market is older women. So we were a particularly vulnerable group. I mean, older people. And it's like that will kill our business. I mean, who's going to be wearing makeup if they're not going out? You know, there'll be there'll be absolutely no social occasions or reasons to, to to dress up and wear makeup and stuff like that. And we are much more of a makeup brand than we are a skincare brand, although it's an important part of our business. I did two things when we first went into lockdown. I started making daily videos, which we call Tea Time at the Ritz with Trisha. I made them in the morning. They were about 20 to 30 minutes long, and I made them on every ups- uh, subject under the sun, anything and anything, anything and everything that I thought might interest women like me who were who were being told to stay stay at home and stay put. And uh, we we send them out via an email at four o'clock every afternoon and we got a huge response to that and in fact I had a lunch yesterday with a group of super troopers um near the factory in Ipswich and they I think about four or five of them said I just want to say thank you again for this uh, tree time at the Ritz with Trisha videos during lockdown they saved my life they were something to look forward to every day. It would have been so boring without them. You And one of them said, my husband used to sit and listen to them as well because we looked forward to hearing what you had to say. I made 60 videos in 12 weeks. So it was a huge demand, but it was good for me as well because it gave, gave me something to do. And then we started this uh, Trisha supertroopers. And the idea behind the name was that we were in this sort of blitz spirit, you know, we were going we to get through it, we were going to get through it together, we were going to be enormously supportive of each other. And um, we, we gathered, uh, again, a, a huge response to that. We've now got eight and a half thousand members of that. And it was brilliant from day one. Um, everybody we started to run competitions like turn yourself into an artwork or show us an outfit that you haven't been able to wear because of lockdown so we had fashion competitions and things like that and people got involved with it and so instead of our sales going down they actually went up and um we came through the pandemic in in much better shape than we could have uh, we could have dreamt really at the beginning but it was by this massive massive engagement that we uh, that we had with our customers so that they felt that we were. I, I you know, I've always said we, we were all in different uh, boats, but we were all in the same storm. So you know, we were all in the storm together, and we had to we had to get through it together, and that's what we did.
2: I just wanted to add one thing in that I think during the pandemic, skincare had a massive boom, but makeup really didn't. So most most makeup brands had a really really tough time during the pandemic. So, while you know our sales were pretty good, and we did manage to grow, and we certainly became more profitable because of changes we made within the business, like we shut two um, shops that we had and we didn 't reopen them. Um, but I think the makeup as a category was really, really tough in the pandemic, so I think we're really pleased that actually compared to a lot of brands, we did pretty well, even if we didn 't have the huge spike in sales that some other skincare brands did,
1: looking at the um, the history of the company overall. What would you say, Tricia, have been the biggest challenges that you faced while launching and then growing this business?
0: Um, I I guess the challenges have always been to keep you have to keep growing as a business. I think I think I think one of the surprises that I've found is that um I'd always thought that there'd be a point at which I'd feel like we'd made it in some way, shape or form. You know, we're, we're there now. We've arrived. But you're always on the journey. You're never at the destination. My like, business is either growing or it's dying. It, it, there's no stasis with business. You can't just stand still. You have to be continually growing. And so I suppose the biggest challenge is how do you find new customers in a cost effective way um, keeping an eye on your cash flow and uh, and making sure that everything you 're doing is focused on that point of growing the business um, without wasting a huge amount of money and i I think the times when we 've had um, our biggest fears our biggest worries is which is when it 's become squeaky or are we going to get through this is when we 've had an imbalance you know too much money going out, not enough money coming in, not enough return on the investment that we were that we 've made and um I think the ten years, over the over the time of the ten years, we have learnt so much. I mean, you know, just vast learning curve that we've been on. And um and hopefully we we have as I said it's always a journey, it's never a destination.
1: So if you look at the um relationships between you, Tricia and Anna and your other daughter, Susie, what does that relationship look like now within the business? And how involved are you with the sort of management or, or leadership? Um, areas of the business
0: well what's brilliant is that I managed to give birth to two uh, daughters who both have complementary skills and very different (laughs) Uh, that was obviously part of my my master plan when I gave birth to these two daughters you know one needs to become Skillful at this, and another will need to become skillful at this. When at the age of sixty-five, I decide to start a business. So um, yes, it's 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 incredible actually that that uh, Susie has always loved a spreadsheet. She worked. Um, she's quite a senior manager at one of the large banks in the City, and um, she had has always had a very. Uh, acute financial brain and very good at, as I say, she loves spreadsheets. So she is in charge of all our operations and does, uh, she has a very, you know, it's a very complex job, she does it extremely well. Um, and Anna and I have always been much bigger picture. We hate spreadsheets. We've been much more visionary, creative, um, able to, uh, much more interested in, in sort of seeing the possibilities of something in a very creative way. And, um, and that's what Anna's been so good at, very, very good at, at, at growing the team, getting the right people in, managing those people very effectively. And I've had some role in that initially and in the middle, middle part of the business. But I've, as I've got older, and I am now 75, um, I've still got lots of energy and enthusiasm, but I really don't want to be down in the weeds of the business. It is not, it's not not—it's not attractive to me. It is not what I want to be doing with my time or all my energy. So what I do, um, I'm still very much the face of the business. Um, as I said, I was at this lunch yesterday in Ipswich, which was with a group of Super Troopers. So I'm, I'm happy to go out there and do a bit of schmoozing with people in a nice way. And I write a blog every week, which I love. I, I produce sort of about 1,500 words uh, a week on in a blog which is about everything under the sun and uh, i get a lot of great feedback for that so um that's what i do now and i and so i feel that i'm contributing to the business by setting the tone by being the representative voice of the business and face of the of the business and being authentic um I i think i add to the authenticity of what we're saying that um you know, we believe in the power and want to celebrate the beauty of older women. Now, that's the sort of thing that we say, and, and that's part of what I We I'm, take a lot I of decisions, represent. just the
2: two of us, but then when they come come to the sort of larger decisions we make, it's particularly around the kind of acquisition and some of the ins and outs of that, then we will bring Tricia into the conversation and run things past her. and um, She's a good-sounding board, and sometimes she's a bit more gung ho than Susie and I. So I think sometimes we kind of need her uh, optimism and positivity where sometimes Susie and I can talk ourselves out of things and she will de- Tr- Trisha will definitely help us um, see the benefits to doing something that we're, we're unsure about. So yeah, most of the big decisions we make, the three of us together. Um, and yeah, we use Trisha as a, a sounding board and consultation.
1: So how have you developed uh, a working relationship alongside a personal one? How do you keep those two sides of your life separate? Well, initially
0: it was difficult because we were we were so kind of overwhelmed by the demands of the business. This is when Anna and I were working on our own. And then a year later, Susie joined us. So it was very hard. And I would go around to each of their houses and we'd start talking about some aspects of the business. And the kids, you know, I've got five grandchildren and they 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 would really resent it in lots of ways. And rightly so, because it's boring for kids if the adults in their lives are always yakking on about something that they <laughs> that they... They really want to hear about and um so i think we learned over time to be better at compartmentalizing although it's it's you know it can be difficult there's something uh that needs to be discussed um but i do try when i go round to either of their houses and they both live quite locally to me happily um i do try and go in as you know mum and granny and not as trisha of look fabulous for forever um although occasionally i might mention something or i might say to susie um how's that promotion we're doing you know the promotion this week how's that doing and she'll she'll just quickly give me the answer I mean I could look but I don't tend to look I don't tend to want to look into those um those kind of metrics because it's just like it's like a drug actually I can't it's like heroin I can't touch it so I tend to avoid it because otherwise I'm on it all the time I'm looking at Magento and I'm looking at what's going on all the time and it drives me nuts in the end so I don't do it anymore but I might you know, drop questions to Susie, but then I'll change the subject just certain. We'll, we won't pursue that. We won't continue with that. And I try to do the same at Anna's as well. And I think we're pretty good at it now. We're pretty good at, at you know, the business stays over there, and our relationship, and my relationship with the uh, the personal relationship that I have with the uh, the girls and their and their other half and their children is uh, is something else.
2: I think because we've been doing it for ten years, it sort of evolves over time, and you kind of. Get used to it, but I do meet people from time to time who say, "How could you work with my mum? My mum drives me nuts." And (laughs) and um and you know, of course, there are moments when we will annoy each other, and um you know, we know each other so well we can kind of predict what the other person's gonna, how the other person's gonna respond, um some of the time. But I think on the whole, we manage to make it work, and. I think as a family business you have a sort of shorthand for communication which helps you make decisions more quickly I think um because we kind of roughly know what the other person will think and then we'll sort of discuss you know decide how much we will want to persuade that person of the you know another point of view but
1: on the whole it's pretty harmonious I would say Do you have any sort of best practice or some advice for other entrepreneurs that might be listening um, about working with family or they're wanting to go into a business with a family member? What advice do you have to sort of help survive that and, and maintain that sort of personal relationship alongside a business one?
0: I mean it, it must be individual to each family really, the dynamics of the relationships that you've got and uh how those relationships work. I mean, there's a sibling relationship in our in our setup, so it's Anna and Susie. Um they're three years different in age, they're very different people, um, have different personalities, they've always always got on brilliantly. I don't think I don't think you've ever had a falling out with Susie, have you, Anna? No.
2: I mean nothing beyond, you know. Why have you borrowed that from my wardrobe, and not returned it when we were like 16? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, you know, I mean, never anything major going on between them. In fact, I, I always felt from the moment that Susie was born that Anna was very protective of Susie. She was always the person. If I, Susie was quite naughty as a child and as a teenager. And uh, so I'd have a go at her fairly frequently. And Anna would always come in between us and say, leave her alone. You know, stop it now. (laughs) To me.
1: (laughs) Her ears will be burning. Listen to this.
0: (laughs) Well, she knows it all. Believe me, she knows it all. So the point is that we you know, we have our own family dynamic. We know how our own family operates and it operates in a particular way. And um it's been remarkable actually over ten years. And I I know what Anna means when, you know, some people say, Oh my god, I can't imagine how you managed to work with your mum or I could say the same about working with with a daughter or two daughters. But, you know, we have our own way of um, getting on and uh, and working with each other. And the thing is that I think it's when you're working with family as opposed to working with employees, people that you've recruited, you've chosen those people. You've actually gone out to the marketplace and you've said, OK, we're going to recruit X, Y and Z. And then they come in and you have a particular relationship with those people, which is always at one distance in a way, because, as I said, they're employees, you're the employer. When it's family, I mean, I didn't go out and recruit Anna and Susie. They came to me and said, you look like you're having some fun. Can we join in? And with with Anna, my initial thing was, well, there's no money and there's certainly no job title <laughs> you can't <even> <laughs> Didn't make it very attractive. But the point is that, you know, they, they they're there because... Uh, partly because they're family, but also they have incredibly important jobs to do, and they've both grown into those jobs massively. You know, just massively grown into those jobs as the grow- as the business has grown. So I I don't know I don't know whether I have anything very helpful to say apart from keep it manage to compartmentalize it as much as you can because you you do have to be. You know, I do feel that sometimes I do have to be their mum. And if I am being their mum for some reason or another, I can't also be being um, Trisha of Look Fabulous Forever. I don't know whether that's a very satisfactory answer for you, but it's, it's, it's a difficult one to answer because I, th- I do think every family is different.
2: Yeah, I once met a husband and wife team that won um, a travel business together. Um, it was pre-pandemic that I met them. And they decided actually that they wouldn't try and keep work and uh, home life separate. They'd just accept that it was all life because it was stressing them out, trying to kind of... You know, they were about to say something and then they were like, oh, no, I probably shouldn't say that now. And it wasn't working, trying to keep those lines quite hard. So they took a different approach and they just were like, well, it's, you can't say it's work and home life, it's just all life. Whereas I suppose because we don't live together... So there is a there is a sort of natural compartmentalization and then also I think you have to be aware of people's moods. There are just some times when I'll see mum and I'm just not in the mood to talk about the business. You know, and but there'll be other times, usually when it's, you know, something great's happened or the sale's been really amazing or there's been a great piece of press where we will want to discuss it because it's it's sort of nice to share those happy,
1: happy times. So, looking at the the company now, where do you see kind of the growth opportunities for Look Fabulous Forever?
2: Um, we have actually we're just about to go live with a warehouse in the EU, and before the before Brexit, we did have a decent um, sized business in the EU. So I think there's there's scope to to grow that and to improve that um, Ireland. Is, is a country that we're looking at. They have the highest beauty spend per capita of any European country, higher than France, even. So um, I think looking at Ireland, we also have business in the States, which is currently around 10% of our revenue, and we have, we have a warehouse there. And trying to grow grow in the States has been on our list for quite a long time. But I think it's something that we want to put some time and attention and thought behind in the next couple of years. Um, I mean there's growth through the factory through through new customer acquisition, and also ways in which we can quite quickly expand our own product range. Now we've got our own factory. so when they, you know when they've got a quiet week in the factory, we can say to them, okay, this is a product we'd like to you know to go for now. So yeah, I think there's there's sort of factory growth and there's the e-commerce growth.
1: Thanks for listening to management today's leadership lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.